0: My name is uh, Sujit Jacob, and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church. And uh, I just wanted to take a minute to welcome you as we jump right back into the, our, our study of the book of Acts. So if you're new to Frontline, uh, most, most of the year we take time to preach through the books of the Bible. And uh, earlier last year, we, uh, we, we started a study of the book of Acts. And we took a short break during December and now we are jumping right back uh, into, this, into our study of the book of Acts uh, as we look at Acts chapter 13 together. But before we start, I, I, want, us to, I want us to do a quick recap and think about what we, have, what we have studied so far, what we have seen so far. So, so far in the book of Acts, we see... That in the in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts we see the ascension of Jesus Christ and the re-establishment of the twelve apostles and we see the, the sending of the promised Holy Spirit upon the church and the birth of the New Testament church and then we see that uh, amidst persecution and suffering the church continues to grow and Jesus actually uses uh, uh, suffering and persecution to scatter the church out into Jerus- out of Jerusalem into the neighboring cities then we see the conversion of this man called Saul who hated Jesus and persecuted Christian. Jesus meets with Saul and captures his heart and, and turns him into a Jesus-loving apostle called Paul. And we see that God uses Paul to take the gospel from the, from, from, uh, the Jewish community out into the non-Jewish community called the Gentiles. And we, by the time we reach uh, uh, Acts uh, chapter 12, we see that Jesus's uh, co-brother James is martyred and killed by uh, a king called king Herod and we see Jesus striking him down later on in this chapter so in all of these things throughout the book of acts we see the active work of Jesus among his people we see Jesus Christ actively engaging the world you know by the by the ministry and the power of the holy spirit you know through the church and, and today, we will be looking at Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, it's, a, it's an important moment in the history of church because in Acts chapter 13, we see global evangelization happening. We see the, the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. So uh, turn with me, grab your, grab your Bibles and, or your mobile devices and turn with me to Acts chapter 13 as we read uh, verses 1 through 4 together. Then we'll pray and then we'll get after it. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray. God, our our, our constant king, our father is so faithful, Lord God. Lord, uh, throughout the ups and downs of last year and the past years, God, one thing we know that you are faithful. There's not been one moment when you've taken your eyes off of your people. So thank you for that, Lord God. With grateful hearts, we stand here. Lord, we we confess, God, that we forget your faithfulness. We have wandering hearts. We have minds that are easily distracted. So, Holy Spirit of God, come breathe your life among us this morning, Lord God. We pray, God, that you will make this time fruitful. We pray that you would use this time to build us up and awaken our affections for Jesus this morning. We love you. We trust you. We rest in you. May we walk out of here loving and resting in Jesus more. In Christ's name we pray. So, uh, For those of you who don't know this, uh, I did not grow up in Oklahoma City. Uh, I know it's really hard to tell, but uh, uh, I moved here about 12 years ago. So in the past 12 years, there are several things about the Midwestern culture that I have learned to love. And uh, one of the things that I really love about about our culture is that, man, we are a friendly state. We are a friendly people. I don't know what your experience has been, but in my experience, we are a pretty friendly people. Because in my books, you know, any time complete strangers, you know, start to exchange pleasantries when passing each other in a public space. That is a friendly community. Because where I come from in India, you don't, you don't, like, you don't talk to strangers, or you don't exchange pleasantries in in strangers when you're crossing the road. You don't say things like, what's up, or how are you, or, you know, the nod, you know, the, the nod up to say what's up, and the nod down, and it's more respectful. I'm not making this up. You can Google this. This is real stuff, you know. So, you guys have to get with the program, you know. So, so, uh, so we, you know, it is fascinating to me that, uh, that, that we are such a friendly culture and, and it would always throw me off when, when someone early on, when, when someone would uh, exchange pleasantries and ask me how my day was going, I would either be stuck, frozen in the moment because I'll be, I'll be trying to figure out where have I seen this person before or do I know this person, you know, or what I would do is I would get super excited and get over friendly and proceed to tell them how my day was actually going, you know. <laughs> And, you know, just FYI, nobody is waiting for a response. Nobody cares to know how your day really is going. So I would freak people out, you know. So, but over time, you know, I have, I have corrected myself and uh, I have calibrated my response to culture and we are, we are good now. So, uh, but then it is, I say this because it's interesting how culture starts to form so much of our view. So much of how we view the world and how we view life is formed by culture. And, and uh, I think it is particularly true... When we consider our view of the church, you know, there's a, there's a Midwestern view of the church and we, we look at different people have different view of church. Some people look at church as a social gathering. Some people look at church as a place where you have all these, uh, important events in life, like your baptism, uh, wedding and funerals. And, and, and some others would look at church and would, uh, look at church as a gathering of, uh, religious people, moral religious people. And for some others, it'll be just, uh, an extension of family tradition. The, the beautiful thing about scripture is that scripture interacts with our worldview. Scripture constantly interacts with our view of life. And scripture starts to adjust our view of life and bring it in line with God's transcendent truth. And so today what I want to do is I want us to look at the passage that we just read and look at uh, the church of Antioch and see the church of Antioch as a, as a model for what a healthy church that loves God, loves people and push back darkness would look like. And, and, and when you start to look at this passage in the church of Antioch, there are four distinctives that stand out. And we're going to talk about those four distinctives, but our, our sincere hope is that we won't just look at the church of Antioch as a, as a historical reality, but we would, we would look at these four distinctives and we long and pray that these four distinctives would be true about us as we gather together on a Sunday and we gather together throughout the week in our community groups. So what are these four distinctives? The church of Antioch is a church that was together because of Jesus. It is a church that was together with Jesus. And it is a church that was together under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. And finally, it is a church that was together on mission for Jesus. So they were together because of Jesus, with Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, and they were together on mission for Jesus. I want us to take the rest of our time to look at what each of this means. It is a church that was together because of Jesus Christ. Look at the first verse of Acts chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So in the very first verse, we see that the leadership community of the church of Antioch displayed a, a beautiful cultural and ethnic diversity. The leadership community was not just only culturally and ethnically diverse, but they had a diversity of gifting that was seen in this church. If you look at the five leaders mentioned here, their backgrounds are completely different. Barnabas is a man who was a a Levite who was raised in the city of Cyprus as an immigrant. So Barnabas was an immigrant. His His experience was that of an immigrant being raised in a culture that is completely different than his own. Then we see uh, uh, here uh, uh, Simeon who was called Niger. He was a, a, a black African leader from, from the North African part of the world in the church. And most of the New Testament scholars would say that this is none other than Simon of Cyrene who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus Christ and who became a Christian later on and became the leader of the early church. And then we see uh, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, another leader in the early church from North Africa. And then you see Manain, a man called Manan, who was, uh, who was introduced as a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was a, a local ruler, and Manain was a friend of Herod in his former life, meaning that he was, he was a man of influence. He grew up in the midst of affluence, and he is now a leader in this church. And then finally, you see Saul. Saul was a, those of you who know his story, Saul was a, a, a former zealous Jew Saul was so uh, zealous for Judaism that he would kill men, women, and children who he perceives as a threat to Judaism. And he was a man. I mean, the, the the only modern parallel to Saul's former life is that of an ISIS terrorist. Here is a man who was like an ISIS terrorist killing and murdering men, women, and children now captured by the love of Jesus Christ. His heart transformed. His path completely changed. God calls him to be an apostle in the early church. So what do these five men have in common? These five men have absolutely nothing in common except for Jesus Christ. They were culturally different. They were ethnically different. Their preferences and their conveniences were completely different. Yet they were unified by something that is greater than themselves. They were unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were unified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had a new identity that Christ gave them. That is, redeemed, loved, adopted children of God and brothers in Christ. Now, make no mistakes. These these guys lived and and, and moved in a time in history where society was highly segregated. The culture that they lived in was highly segregated. It is not popular during that time by the norms of that uh, society for people to integrate. It is actually discouraged, you know, to, to interact with people outside of your camp, outside of your preference. And so here we see that in the midst of a segregated culture, we see this leadership team, this leadership team with unity and diversity that puts the gospel to display, that puts the glory of Christ to display. Now, I, I remember uh, my, when I think of my, my own experience six and a half years ago when I came to Frontline, um, it, you know, Truth be told, there, there, was a, I mean, there was a lot of patience and time and love and grace needed from my part and the part of the community before we all you know, learned to adjust with each other. I remember having an early conversation with some of the guys and, uh, and halfway into the conversation, I realized that I don't have the, the skills or the experience or the interest in some of the basic bonding activities. Like, I have never hunted in my life before. You know, I have never shot a gun, you know, before that. And so, my idea of hunting was uh, limited to, you know, hunting for a good discount in the, in the meat aisle of the local grocery store. And then, uh, I, I, I hate outdoor activities. You know, that's work. And so, uh, my idea of camping was uh, staking out in my living room, building forts with my children, and eating popcorn, and watching cartoons. I love that. I'm a content man with that. And... Uh, uh, my idea of, I, I, did not know how to grill, grill meat. You know, I have not even seen a grill before I came to Oklahoma City. So, uh, I, I did not know, I, I, hate fishing. I still do, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I actually wrestled with this. I was not sure whether I should be letting you guys into this, this part of my life, you know, because I see the look of disappointment in their face, you know, right now. But just to put you guys at ease, you know, I have, I have learned, you know, to love some of, some of these things over time. So, uh, the, the bent, the bent of my heart the, the temptation was to, was to find a community that looks like me, that talks like me, that shares my interest, that shares my experience and be with that community. Because the easiest thing for me is to love myself. And the most effortless thing for me to do is love someone who's exactly a replica of who I am. But the, the beautiful thing is that God, the Holy Spirit contended with my heart and he used the tension of diversity to grow me. He used the tension of diversity to teach me what it is to love, what it is to receive love, what it is to experience grace, what it is to be patient with someone who's got that experience that is completely different than mine. And, and God, the Holy Spirit used brothers in, 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 in this family to, to build me and shape me to the man that I am today and draw things out of me that, that needed to be drawn out. I have over time built lasting bonds and, and intimate relationships with several people in this community that I will not trade for anything else. God, the Holy Spirit puts to display the glory of the gospel in the midst of diversity. Jesus Christ gives us, if you are a Christian, God gives us a primary identity that we are people that are loved by God. We are people that are forgiven by God. That becomes our primary identity. Our, our culture and our ethnicity and our preference and our affinity and all of these things, and they don't give us our primary identity. Now, this does not mean that we are blank slates. This does not mean that, you know, we are colorblind, you know, that I hate that word. You know, this is a God, the Holy Spirit actually helps us to be more aware of, 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 the, of the beauty and creativity of God around us when we sit, when we sit secure in our primary identity as people redeemed by Jesus Christ. We, we learn to show grace to each other. We learn to approach each other with patience and love. When we realize that between us and between our brothers and sisters of a different experience stands Jesus. We learn to relate to each other through Jesus. We learn to show grace. We learn to receive grace. We learn to cultivate interest in their stories. The, the, the gospel is put to display in the midst of diversity. Now, what is beautiful here is that, and this is exactly why we want to be the kind of church that contends and prays and, and actively seeks for uh, not just cultural and ethnic diversity, but diversity of age and diversity of stage of life in our Sunday gatherings and throughout, throughout the week in our community groups. This is why it is important because it puts to display the glory of Christ. Now, this church in Antioch was not just uh, ethnically and culturally diverse. There was also the diversity of gifting that was present here. You see, there are there are prophets and then there are teachers in this church. The prophets and teachers did not like work against each other. The prophets and teachers in this church did not like work in their own silos. But the prophets and teachers came together, and this is a church that was not that is not built around one particular gifting. This is a church that had a diversity of gifting that was put to display. In, in, in the way they functioned. And, and, and this, this, is, this is to the glory of God and this is to the good of the people that God had called them to serve. So God has called us to be a people who are formed, who are together, united together and held united together by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now think about it for a second. Think about what a beautiful witness it would be to a watching world if all across our congregations, if all across our community groups, we are a people that are willing to lay down our preferences, that are willing to lay down our conveniences and willing to be patient and willing to open up our homes and, and willing to be the kind of people that, that, that views each other as image bearers of God. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful picture of the gospel that would be to a watching world. Now, the church of Antioch was not just a people together because of Jesus, but they were a people together with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. I can't find verse 2. Oh, there it is. So, they were a people together with Jesus. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So while they were fasting and praying, this was a group of people that came together to minister unto the Lord in worship and fasting. This is a group of people that that had a, an expectation for God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit to be present in their gathering. This is not just a group of people that got together to talk about Jesus and to talk uh, and to study more of the historical, you know, uh, things about Jesus. But this was th- these people were a group of people that got together with an expectation that the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is present in their gathering. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if If we lack an expectation in our hearts that God, the Holy Spirit would move today in our midst, maybe we don't have a longing in our heart for Jesus because a longing for Jesus and an expectation for him to move goes hand in hand. We cannot have have a longing without an expectation for God's presence and power to be present in our gathering. So these are guys that, that had a humble dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. Their, their, pneumatology, which is a fancy word for a study of the Holy Spirit, you know, their pneumatology actually, actually led them to creating space in their gathering to fast and pray and worship. And they listened to the Holy Spirit's directive. They expected the Holy Spirit to speak and the Holy Spirit meets them in their expectation. When the church gathers together and start to worship and fast, the Holy Spirit separates two of their key leaders for missions the Holy Spirit separates Paul and Barnabas, you know, and to be sent out for his work. You know, Jesus Christ has called us as the church to, to serve him, to do something that is, a, that, is a, that is an impossible task without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We've been called to preach the gospel and make disciples and we cannot make disciples without a humble and prayerful dependence on the Spirit. Because when we set out to uh, do the task of, uh, set out to respond to the task of uh, making disciples, we realize that we face spiritual oppositions. And then we face, we also, you know, we face spiritual opportunities. So there is spiritual opposition on one side, and there are spiritual opportunities on the other side. And we need God, the Holy Spirit, in both cases. We need His power to face spiritual opposition, and we need His counsel to discern spiritual opportunities. We live in this, in this weird world where, more, where, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of people. There are the kind of people that will completely dismiss the supernatural. And they would say that the only world that exists is a world that we can see, that we can hear, that we can touch. Just the natural world. And then we have the kind of people who, who are so obsessed with the supernatural that they are always, they're constantly looking for the devil behind doors and behind bushes. So, so there's, there's two kind of broad views that we see. But the Bible does not shy away from telling us about the supernatural. The Bible does not shy away from warning the church about the adversary that we have. Who walks around like a roaring lion. Satan and his demons that hate God. That hate the work of God in this side of eternity. Now, Satan is not an equal foe to God, as many people think. It's not like God and Satan are called, you know, caught up in. Jesus and Satan are not like arm wrestling. You know, that's a, that's a, I mean, get that image out of your head. You know? so the, uh, Satan, is a, Satan is a fallen angel. He's a created being. He's got a start and he's got an end. There'll be a day when we'll be, he'll, he'll be bound and thrown into the lake of fire. But till that day, the Bible does warn us that we have an adversary of our soul. We have an enemy that is working against us. And our, our strength and our intellect and our prowess would not be sufficient to face this enemy. We need the Holy Spirit's power to face this enemy. And we see this in, a, in, in Acts chapter 13. We see that Paul is sent out from this church and, uh, to preach the gospel. And he goes to Cyprus and he goes to an island of Paphos where he is preaching the gospel. And he is he, met with a resistance. He is met with a resistance from a guy called uh, uh, Elemis the Magician. He was a known magician in that land, and he starts to oppose the work of God. And, and it's interesting that Paul does, not, Paul does not face him with his own strength and his own power. But for, Paul depends on the power of the Holy Spirit to face this, this opposition. Let's look at uh, verses 9 through 12 of Acts chapter 13. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Outside of a humble and prayerful dependence on God the Holy Spirit, we cannot face spiritual opposition. Paul does that, Paul faces this opposition, being filled with the spirit of God. Now it is not just spiritual opposition; we also have as we set out you know to engage in the task of making disciples, there is also tremendous Everyday spiritual opportunities, and we need God, the Holy Spirit, and His guidance to discern those spiritual opportunities. Sometimes, what God does is He brings us in contact with people in whose heart He is already working. Sometimes we are in the right place in the right time, and we need the Holy Spirit's voice to tell us. We need His uh, counsel to discern those moments. I'm I'm reminded of a story that I've heard of a missionary couple in the Middle East there was a uh, missionary couple in the middle east uh, in in a in a part of middle east that was uh, torn with sectarian violence and they were they were driving uh, through the small town and they stopped uh, in, in front of a, a, a convenience store to get some supplies. And as the husband was about to exit the car, the wife uh, grabs a, a Farsi translation of the New Testament and gives it to the husband and says, uh, uh, I think God, the Holy Spirit, wants you to give this to that man standing in front of the store. And so the husband turns to look at uh, the man standing in front of the store and he sees a, a scary looking guy standing there and he's got like a semi-automatic rifle on his shoulder. And so the husband looks at the wife and looks at the man, and grabs the Bible, walks into the store, quickly walks out, and starts driving with the Bible in his hand. And so, the wife, um, and the wife and, you know, uh, the husband starts to have one of those husband-wife conversations. And, uh, um, the wife starts to, you know, get frustrated with the husband, and ask him, why didn't you give that Bible to this man? And so, the the husband says, no, God told me, you know, don't listen to you, and keep driving. So, um, and, and, and th- this wife was a persistent lady. And so at one point, she burst into this prayer and said that, God, on the day of reckoning, may this man's blood not be on my hands. And so now that's not, just a side note, that's not a motivating prayer. You know, like, let's not do that ever. You know, so, uh, but this man was so enraged to hear the wife say that. And so he turned the car around and, uh, you know, drove back to the location. And he he, uh, he stopped the car and he grabbed the Bible and he, uh, uh, ran or he, mo- he uh, ran, walked towards this, this person and, uh, and as he was walking towards this person soon he realized that his anger turned into fear and, uh, and as he started and, and he stood in front of this guy and handed him the New Testament co- copy of uh, the Farsi translator of the New Testament and the man grabbed the Bible and looked at this man this husband's face and the husband was uh, ready to meet Jesus and closed his eyes you know and, uh, and the man started weeping the man started breaking down and he hugged the husband and he started to proceed. He started to uh, tell the husband, the missionary, his story. He said that he, was, he lives about one day's journey away from this location. And he said that he's been standing here for the past two days. For the past two days and he, he tells him that about, about a week ago, he, he, he had a vision. He had a, he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw an angel of the Lord tell him and give him direction to come and stand in this location. And he, told, he, he was told that, that, that God would send one of his servants who would give the, the book of truth that would lead to eternal life. Here is God the Holy Spirit working and giving, giving us discernment, giving this man and his wife discernment to see spiritual opportunities. You know, one of the things that I wonder is what would it look like? What would it look like for us in 2017 to be the kind of people that create space and have a humble dependence on the Holy Spirit of God? What would it look like for us in our community groups to come together and and fast and pray for each other? And also fast and pray for the Lord to reveal spiritual opportunities in our neighborhood, spiritual opportunities in our city. This is not just limited to, to, to missionaries. You know, this is not the experience of somebody on the other side of the world. But God, the Holy Spirit is here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what would it look like for us to be a, the kind of people that are not just talking about Jesus, but that, that believe that Jesus Christ and his transforming power is present in our gathering. Now, in addition to that, we see that uh, the church of uh, Antioch was a church that was together. Together under the authority of Jesus Christ. They were together under the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we see in this, in this verse that this church heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. They heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and they obeyed. They obeyed His voice. They obeyed His commandment. I love how their devotion for God is not just limited to an intellectual ascent to systematic theology. Their devotion to God, their devotion to God moves them to obedience. Their devotion to God helps them to respond to God, the Holy Spirit, in obedience. Their understanding of grace moves their hearts to obedience. They hear the voice of God. Now, this is the kind of obedience that is going to cost them. Because here are five key leaders in this church. And two of the most influential leaders have been sent out. Which means that in simple math, there are only three le- leaders left in the church. Two of the most influential leaders are sent out for the sake of the gospel. Because they are a church that listens to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And obeys the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's interesting to me how that, that when, we look at, when we look at our church, when we look at the church now. Jesus Christ is still the head of the body. He's the one who is still directing and building and counseling and redirecting the church even today. And we as the people of God have been called to listen and pause and obey his voice. What, what it would mean for us today to be a people that are, are, are together under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word is that we take his call seriously. The call to make disciples, the call to preach the gospel, the call to work for the welfare of our city, the call to care for the widow and the orphan and the marginalized in our city is not just suggestions, but it is commandments of, of the resurrected King Jesus Christ that demands a response of obedience from the church. God calls us. It's not reserved for a few people. God calls everybody who's a Christian to respond to his call. To take it seriously, this is what it means to be a people under the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word. In addition to this, we see that the church in Antioch is a church that was together on mission for Jesus. Look at verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So, the church responds to the direction of the Holy Spirit and separates. These leaders, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them into the known world to preach the gospel and, and, and demonstrate the kingdom. And we see here that this is a historic moment in the life of this church. And in, in, in many ways, this is a historic moment in the life of the, the capital C church. The, the pastor John Piper says this about the impact of this moment in church history. I quote, Before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece or Rome or Spain. Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion adherents of the Christian religion today with a Christian witness in virtually every country of the world. How beautiful is that? Before Before this this church, the church of Antioch had no idea that one of their leaders, God in his sovereignty and mercy and his predetermined plan would use one of their leaders to write the 13 books out of the 27 books in the New Testament. This church gladly sends off because the church values the mission of God because the church believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy to be preached and heard. And we, in some sense, I think that we today, all of us sitting in this room, we stand in some in some sense by the grace of God, we stand on the shoulders of this historic moment. The gospel came to us because there was a church that was willing to send their leaders to the known world, so that jesus so there's much much would be made of Jesus Christ and his renown it is it is It is interesting to me that a lot of times in in our context in the western context, we tend to All of us are guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. We tend to measure the success of a church by the seating capacity of a church. Here is a church with 25,000 seating capacity for 25,000 people. Here is a church with a seating capacity for 5,000 people, 2,000 people. But when you look at the impact of the church in Antioch, it is not measured by their seating capacity. It is measured by their sending capacity. It is measured by their capacity to send their leaders, send people. Who are, who are convinced that Jesus Christ and his gospel is worthy to be preached. The church in Antioch is not an entity. It is people like you and I. The church in Oklahoma City is not an entity. Frontline church is not an entity. It is us, people called by God to, to view, to view the, the mission of God and embrace the mission of God with our entire lives. We do not exist to serve our comfort. We don't exist to serve our security. We exist as Christians to made in the image of a missio, missional God, miss your day, to serve the purpose of God, to be a part of the purpose of God that is unfolding in our city. I wonder what it would look like for us to start thinking about our neighbors and our city through the, through the lens of a missional God's heart, through the heart of the missional God. When I think about the mission of God, I'm I'm, I'm often uh, reminded of the the, the sport event, uh, the track and field event called relay race. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. I'm pretty sure everybody is familiar with that. the uh, uh, the the event where the athletes have to run a course, they have a track, and there are several runners, and they, they, have, they stand in equidistant spots, and then the, the person who starts from the starting line will run with the baton and will give it to the person, uh, who's, uh, he will cover his or her segment and give it to the next person. They will run with the baton to the next person, and, and so on. Imagine if in that relay race, one of the athletes, one of the runners received the baton and decided to sit down and chill. It's not going to go well for that team, right? That team is going to lose. The gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to you, the Holy Spirit of God who, who has awakened your affection by the gospel that is preached, calls you to run your course, calls me to run my course. It is, the gospel is on its way, maybe, maybe to some other part of your city, maybe to some other part of your neighborhood, maybe to some other part of the world, but God has called each one of us to run our course and finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, the church in Antioch valued the mission of God. In fact, the rest of uh, chapter thirteen and fourteen, we see Paul going to Paul and Barnabas going to Iconium and and Lystra and and uh, uh, Antioch and other places and and engaging culture and proclaiming the gospel and demonstrating the kingdom. Now, why does God? Why does God call His church and give? Give, give his church such an important task. God calls his church and gives his ter- church such an important task because Jesus cares for the lost. Jesus cares for the people that are living in darkness. God cares and God loves people in Athens and people in Europe and people in Africa and, 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 and people in Thailand. God cares for people in Mustang as much as he cares for people in Mumbai. God cares for his people so much so that he sent, he saw us in our sins. He saw us in our sins and he sent his son Jesus Christ to come and enter the brokenness of this world and to live a perfect life that God's law demands. And Jesus died a, a violent death on a Roman cross in our place for our sins. And God the Father receives the life of Jesus in our place and the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And God the Father raises Jesus Christ up from the dead on the third day. And through the life, death, and resurrection... Of Jesus Christ, God offers us forgiveness. He offers us reconciliation. He offers us an invitation into the family of God to be adopted as children of God. And he calls us and he gives us this great mission of carrying the, the uh, being ambassadors of reconciliation and carrying the message of the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. So as we conclude, in 2017, we want to be a people brought together because of Jesus. We want to be a people that are together with Jesus. We want to be a people that are under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. And we want to be a people sent out on mission for Jesus. Now, we don't do that. We don't, we don't do that in our own strength. We don't do that in, only on, in our own efforts. We, we have to remember today that even as we dream this, even as we step into this call, we have to remember that it is Christ who will finish the work that he started in us. We are the body of Christ, and Christ Jesus is our, the head of the body. The life that we experience towards change and transformation comes through Jesus Christ. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who destroys the dividing walls of hostility that stands between brothers and sisters. It is Jesus who gives us a new identity as redeemed children of God, and it is Jesus who unites us together and holds us together as people brought together because of Jesus. It is. It is He who gave Himself. To us inseparably and sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And it is he who promised us that wherever we gather in his name, he will be in our midst so that we can be a people together with Jesus. It is Jesus Christ who is right now, even as I'm speaking, seated on the right hand side of the Father, reigning and ruling over all creation with all authority. And it is he who has called you and I to, be, to live our lives as a people gathered under his authority. And finally, Jesus Christ is the ultimate missionary. He's the ultimate missionary that left the comfort and the culture of heaven and en- willingly entered the brokenness of this world and lived a perfect life in our place and pursued our wayward hearts and patiently, patiently pursues our heart. And he's the one who calls in- us into the family of God and gives us the message of reconciliation and empowers us to take it take it as a people called to mission for Jesus. So I want to encourage you. Even as we pray. Even as we dream. In 2017. Let us, let us pray and trust in the grace of God. And let's ask God to give us hearts. Give us hearts that would, that would find joy. In the things that bring joy to the heart of God. Let's pray.